Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I'm your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Olga Kramer. She's a journalist and grad student based in Montana. She also writes an aggressively earnest advice column at the LA Review of Books and is currently trying to come up with the perfect roller derby name. Olga, welcome. Hi, Mallory. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being had. Um, Have you gotten any closer to the perfect roller derby name yet? You know, it's funny you should ask. I have recently been sending out a number of emails to, like, friends with lists um, and asking for feedback. Unfortunately, everybody has a different opinion, um, which I I should have expected because most of the names are very, like, goofy. And so, you know, I have a diversity of senses of humor among my friend group, apparently. (laughs) So everybody likes something different. (laughs) Isn't all of our problem that there are too many opinions? Yes, yes. Um, I I actually think that's a good thing. I I think it's nice to get more input and then uh, sift through it, like pick out the ones you like. Yeah. Well, I I hope that something about our conversation today will help you unlock the best, most perfect, ideal roller derby name that is possible for you. Yeah, I'm fully expecting to leave here with like with with the name in my back pocket. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that needs to be just like our shared spiritual goal. So with that in mind, our first question feels thematically relevant in that it has to do with uh, names, relationships, shared responsibility, whether or not to name somebody else. Um, And I'm very excited. Would you please read our first letter? I would be honored. Dear Prudence, I am about to realize a lifelong dream. My first book is going to be published. I'm so excited, but I'm hung up on how to deal with my husband in the acknowledgments. From what I've seen, people thank their spouses effusively, referring to them as the person who made it all possible. The problem is, while my husband is a good guy, he's been more of a hindrance to my writing life than anything else. He's theoretically all for it, but has not been able to give me time and space, so I've carved it out of my work and personal time. It feels dishonest to talk about how supportive he was, but otherwise it would be a big public F you to do otherwise. What should I do? I love this question. I know, I do too. (laughs) I have a sneaking suspicion that there are probably a lot of people who have effusively thanked their husbands in the acknowledgments of their books and did not, in fact, mean it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. I think um, I the the first thing I thought about was that this is like the original social media shout out, I think, like on Mm -hmm. paper, um, where you're kind of trying to show everybody how great your life is maybe by sh- by telling them how many people helped you achieve this pinnacle and and it just isn't um isn't necessarily always how it goes yeah i mean i'll throw this out there uh just as one option uh letter writer which is this unless you are writing like a book that had a lot of research involved um like an academic book or something that involved any kind of scholarly research, uh, acknowledgments are optional. Um, I did not have an acknowledgment section in my first book, and I am pretty sure I don't have an acknowledgment section in my second book. That's not true. I think I do, but it's very (laughs) brief. It is not like 
mandatory uh, if you don't want to have a little sort of like splash at the end that's uh, that feels disingenuous or or like it's required. It is not required. You do not have to thank a bunch of people just because you wrote a book. Well, it seems like one of the issues here might be that the this author wants to thank some people or maybe is like like wants it seems it sounds like this is a real as um, as they write a realizing a lifelong dream, right? So chances are like I can imagine that maybe they want to participate a little bit in that whole like excited public thinking thing um mm-hmm. and just don't know how to deal with the husband. But I I wonder like usually when people have husbands and keep them there's something about them that they are happy to have, right? So is there a way, letter writer, that you could like thank your husband for something else that he provides in your life, which maybe in this roundabout way makes your writing possible? And if not, I have follow-up questions because... Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true, right? There's two issues, one of which is how do I handle the acknowledgments? And then the second implicit question is how do I talk to my husband about the fact that he was not helpful to me as I wrote a book, which is, I think, very much something that the two of you should talk about. But yeah, so you can either not have an acknowledgement section if the whole thing kind of feels like something you have to do rather than something you'd like to do. You can always say, I don't want one. I, I would be surprised if your publishers were like, you absolutely have to. We're, we're putting our foot down, but I don't know. Maybe they would. Um, you can also just say something like, uh, and lastly, my husband, I love you. Yeah, keep it simple. Keep it simple and definitely keep it true. Like if that's not true, don't say that either. But Yeah, if you don't love the guy, certainly by all <laughs> means don't say it. Yeah, it is not – you don't have to thank him just because you're married to him. Um, it, like, I love a lot of family members who I did not thank in the acknowledgments of my second book. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not wonderful people who aren't, a, like, rich and meaningful part of my life. It's just you can't thank everybody, um, and, and it's not required. You know, I really wish that there that it was more acceptable to do the no thanks section. I don't know if you've seen this. I can't remember what author it is, but there's, like, an author that – I think is kind of notorious for doing a no no thanks like like anti acknowledgments in in his books, and I want I want that to be true for everybody, like a cheers and jeers section. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like this is this is everybody who didn't help me. I know you wanted to, but turns out it didn't help much. Yeah, yeah. So I would say I, I think your fears that it would be a big public f you to do otherwise. Again, maybe if you're doing a very specific type of. I don't know, academic publishing or something, it might be. But I, I'm inclined to think that other people, no one's ever going to read your acknowledgement section as thoroughly as you do, right? Yeah, like, exactly. This is the, Nobody's going to care. And maybe your husband might not care either. Yeah, if he's been sort of indifferent to the whole process, he frankly might skip that section. Right, exactly. If he didn't if he didn't help with your book, he might, he might not be the most attentive reader of it. Yeah, so I, I would say certainly you can... Tone down your expectations of like how big and obvious uh, an omission that would be just because I, I don't think it's very, very likely that other people will be reading your acknowledgement section with a fine tooth comb and then be like, oh, holy smokes, this author <laughs> didn't think their husband. I This is wild. Um, right, and then the right. other thing is, obviously, I almost feel like this goes without saying, you should talk to your husband about this. Um, this. This should be a topic of discussion between the two of you, which is like, hey, you say that you want to support my writing, but you don't do it. Here are some specific ways that you can support my writing in the future. Would you please consider doing them? Yes, I, I co-sign that. I think asking for specific things is always the way to go. 
Yeah, but good luck. Talk to your husband. Um, absolutely. Like, and you don't have to sugarcoat it. I mean, you don't have to say that like he's a terrible person, but to just say, hey, as I am coming to the end of this book, I'm really just acknowledging it. it's really frustrating and difficult for me that you were not supportive. Um, and I don't want that to happen again. And I want to be honest with you about how that makes me feel um, and, and, you know, have that difficult conversation. That's worth having that conversation because, you know, you may write another book someday and I don't think you want a repeat of this experience. Yeah. And congratulations on having uh, your dream realized, by the way. That's amazing. You you have yeah. a book that's going to come out that may have an acknowledgments page. Everything attached to the acknowledgments page is way more important and way more exciting. So congratulations about that. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. All right. So this next letter, we're switching uh, media platforms. We're moving on to television. Um, and the subject line is simply, past is back to haunt me. Dear Prudence, Ten years ago, I was a massive fan of a TV show and basically cyber-stalked the actors everywhere. I got really good at it, and other people in the fandom were always impressed by my data-mining abilities. So when I got a crush on a girl at my college, I thought the best thing to do would be to find out everything about her by any means necessary. Long story short, my parents found my creepy shrine of weird stalkerness and got me to a therapist, and briefly, a hospital. I'm doing better now, or more or less, I'm still obsessive, but I know my triggers and I mostly keep them under control. Until recently, when I moved back to my hometown to help my parents after an accident. My ex-obsession still lives here and now wants to be best friends. She never knew, as far as she was concerned, I was just this nice girl who had so much in common with her, because I had gone through her bag when she went to the bathroom. She's hurt that I've been cold with her, and people in town now think that I am a bit of a stuck-up snob after living in the city. I've never told anyone about my breakdown, and I know that my parents would be mortified if the whole town knew. Plus, I'm tempted to be friends with her again, even though I know it's a bad idea. This is a— Yeah, this one— This is this intense. One is, it's very intense. It's very intense. It's very dramatic. Um, I feel for the letter writer's desire to maintain the boundaries that are necessary to keep them, like, well. Mm -hmm. um, but this is, this is big stuff. Yeah, there, there's a lot going on here. There's like the cyber stalking of like the, this this skill, really, which is it seems like a weird way to describe cyber stalking uh, strangers. But I wonder if there, it, I feel like that fits into it, that like that was it sounds like a pretty early message that like being good at something was was a good thing. Um, and that might have kind of colored the way that that behavior, you know, got stuck in the letter writer's habits or or sort of even ideas of like how how to be in the world. Right. Yeah. And it does seem like there's at least some awareness on the letter writer's part of what was the dysfunctional thinking that enabled this obsessive behavior at the time? What were the ways in which her community um, sort of enabled and supported that? And, and what's different now? Um so that that does seem like there's at least some awareness of no, this was not a data mining ability. This was cyber stalking, um, and I I understand that differently now. My take on this is there's no way to tell this girl here's why I can't be friends with you. Definitely not. No. Yeah, yeah. You you can't do that. Not not to not to tell the truth about it for sure. Yeah. So and that does put you in a difficult situation, right? Because it's it's terrible to think that somebody else doesn't think well of you. Um, even if you don't think well of them, it's not fun. But when you think, oh, you are genuinely a good person, it, it can be actively painful to to not do something about that impression. But I, I think what you're doing is right. I think it is 
the best possible option for you is to let some of your hometown friends think of you as slightly stuck up or slightly just reserved. If she makes any other attempts to sort of connect with you to just make it clear, you know, I'm just I'm not available for that. Sorry. Right. right. Um, and to not go into detail, to not look for any reasons to provide her with details. There's a few things in here where I think the letter writer is like kind of hard on themselves in a way that they don't have to be. They mention this creepy shrine of weird stalkerness and like says they say that their parents would be mortified and the parents might be mortified. But the, like it's not just being a creepy stalker with no boundaries. Like there was a legitimate health issue involved. Um, and I think that I don't get a sense if, you know, about whether this letter writer actually maybe wants to possibly be a little bit more open about, like, some of what they're dealing with. I I agree that I don't think it's – it should not be, like, a full disclosure situation probably. Um, I think that would make their life a lot harder. Mm -hmm. But maybe they maybe want the opportunity to be able to share with somebody in this new – or new old town that they live in, like – I've had some health issues and am letting you know that, like, I'm not – like, to, to sort of couch it in something besides just, like, I don't want to talk to you. Right. Because I think those are two really separate things. Um, on the one hand, there's – is there anything I can do about the fact that this person I genuinely like doesn't think well of me? Um, and how do I deal with the fact that I'm occasionally tempted to establish a friendship with her? And I think it's pretty clear there that the answer is um, – for your own well-being, that's not possible. But then the other side is, I've never told anyone about my breakdown. My parents would be mortified if anyone knew. Um, and I, I do agree that I think there are ways in which um, the letter writer can, should, ne- needs to, or or should be allowed to um, let go of some of the shame. Like if there are people that you do know, whether they're in your hometown or, you know, elsewhere, um, if you want to talk with them a little bit about the nature of like that breakdown and 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 say just like I went through a really hard time um, about 10 years ago when I was in college and I had a lot of trouble um, taking care of myself and, and I, I now like receive help for those issues. Like that's OK for you to say to somebody who is unrelated to this specific situation. You can share that with some friends if you want to. Um, because it should not be some terrible secret that you can never tell anyone about, I think. Yeah, and it's okay that your parents might be embarrassed about it. Like, that is a feeling for them to deal with. Um, there are probably lots of situations in which, if they haven't happened already going forward, in which your parents might disapprove of some of the choices that you're making. And basically, like, it's it's okay to it's okay to embarrass your parents sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think especially too, you know, I can understand why you would not want to share the specific details about the nature of your obsessive behavior towards this woman, in part because, you know, that could affect how other people saw her. That's Those are details that I think are, uh, it's understandable why you wouldn't want to share those. But if you wanted to talk to somebody else um, about you know, your struggles with obsessive tendencies. Um, that's that's part of your story. That's not something that makes you a bad person. Um, the fact that you are doing better and receiving the help that you need is, is really wonderful. Um, and that's okay to share. Um, again, I don't think you should do so with the intention of hoping that it gets back to this particular woman so that you two can have some sort of friendship, because I think you I think you already know that that's just not going to be safe for you. Um, and it wouldn't be good for her. And I think the yeah, and it sounds like the letter writer is like pretty 
pretty steady about that, that um, they're right. tempted to be friends, but they know that it's not a good idea. Right. And and the letter writer doesn't say, like, I've been, you know, responding more warmly to her overtures or I find myself going out of my way to be at places where I know she will be. It, it sounds like the letter writer has a pretty good understanding of, yep, that temptation exists, but it's not dictating my behavior. And it's in, in some ways, I mean, this this obviously is a pretty specific uh, issue that the letter writer wrote in with. But in some ways, it's also, I think, kind of broad in the sense of like, I'm uncomfortable that people don't like me or that I'm uncomfortable about what some people are thinking about me. And that's a pretty common situation. I mean, that's – it sucks. I don't think it ever starts to suck less as far as I know. But I think, um, you know, kind of learning to, like, sit in that discomfort and take care of yourself in other ways and, like, get through it I think is a good thing to learn at any stage, I guess I would say. Yeah, and I think one last thing that would maybe be a strategy that you could avail yourself of is just you do have the sort of blanket excuse of um, I'm helping my parents after they went through an accident. And I'm not suggesting that you like start spinning dramatic lies about how much care your parents require if that's not true. Um, But, you know, that's a pretty reasonable uh, excuse to not be up for a lot of socializing, right? It's just like I'm actually really busy taking care of my parents. and I think most people would understand that that you might be kind of um, engrossed in that task. And that's kind of like a polite thing you can point to if you don't want to go into a lot of details about why you're um, not out socializing a lot. But you also want to make it clear it's not just that you think everyone in your town sucks. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. And, and good luck. I hope your parents recover soon and that you're able to move back to um, whatever city is is your sort of city of residence and that you're just able to not have to like worry about running into this particular person in the grocery store. That that sounds pretty stressful. Would you be so good as to read our next letter? Yes, of course. This one, uh, the subject is anxiety about school shootings. Dear Prudence, I am a public school teacher in a classroom with huge windows and no clear safety plan from the higher ups. Since the shooting in Parkland, Florida, close to where I live, I have been having trouble getting up in the mornings, feel panicked all the time, and have taken time off work to recalibrate my thinking, hence why I can post to a live chat during the day. I have talked to my doctor, who upped my medication, but even my spouse thinks I'm being ridiculous. For what it's worth, I would leap in the way to save one of my students and have taught for 30 years, but this seems insurmountable and I'm contemplating early retirement. My bosses don't seem to care. They just talk to us about not politicizing the tragedy and just lock your doors and everything will be fine. Clearly, this isn't enough. Help. Man, the people who are around you, letter writer, are doing a bad job of responding to your concerns. And I I hope you know that. Yeah, I mean, I understand that, like, part of what's so hard about this is, like, one of the most useful things uh, uh, about dealing with stuff like school shootings is to, like, actually push for gun control. And, like, in the absence of that happening, it's I think everybody can kind of respond in different ways, which is sort of like, wow, there's this horrible thing that happens all the time now. Um, and there's just sort of like nothing like nothing to be done. And so a lot of people will want to respond to that just by saying, let's put that out of our minds. Let's not think about that again. And if there's somebody who's really shaken up by that. Um, then they can get almost irritated with you for reminding them of the ways in which we have not collectively as a society ensured the safety of children who go to school. Um, and so I like I imagine that the, the, the extreme desire, it sounds like the people around you have to get you to stop 
talking about this or having anxiety or panic about this um, is so that they can pretend that they are safe. Yeah. And I think maybe I mean, yeah, I I think that's a very um, possible and pretty generous uh, reading of their uh, their responses, I think. Um, To me, it also sounds like they're they're kind of just like so insensitive as to be I, I don't even I'm like at a loss for words like I to to see somebody experiencing anxiety in a very real way and to just to accuse them of being ridiculous or to tell them essentially to like suck it up is or to lock the door yeah as if just, a lock could... <laughs> it's just like not helpful like that is not a helpful response um it's not not I mean maybe yes like it is painful to deal with and so they feel like they have to like use whatever tools they can to like shut it down but but that is also not an effective tool like you're not solving the problem you're not even adequately ignoring the problem you know to me it's the sort of saddest thing here was was that even the writer's spouse thinks they're being ridiculous and to not get that support from your spouse when it's this is such a like intense and visible issue is um I'm I'm really sorry that you're going through that yeah, and just to say, like, don't politicize this. To say, to not want your students to be shot at while you teach them is not an especially controversial political stance. It's nonsense to to refer to it as being political when there's nothing in this letter that talks about you know the writer trying to get political with anybody. They're just experiencing anxiety, which is as personal as you can get, really. Right. So I would say that there's a couple of practical things that would, I think, in the long run, um, uh, help you feel like you are at least participating in something that is actively attempting to do something about this problem. Um, So a a couple of um, campaigns or organizations that I'm aware of that work for, uh, like, pushing gun control legislation um, include uh, the Brady Campaign um, and Every Town for Gun Safety. and as well as the coalition to stop gun violence, like which are just such reasonably named groups, <laughs> um, you, you can also, I, I would imagine, especially if you're close to Parkland, um, uh, you know, attempt to learn more about if there are any like um, local attempts to get legislation passed or any local gun control groups kind of meeting and organizing on a regular basis that it would feel useful and productive and helpful um, to join or to donate to or to throw your support behind. Um, just because it can also be helpful when you're in that kind of constant state of anxiety to feel like not just that you are trying to prepare for the next um, disaster, but also actively working towards something that you care deeply about, which is the safety of your students and people trying to exist in public. Um, which is not to say that that is going to immediately make you feel better tomorrow morning about getting up and going to school. Um, but that that may be, in addition to increasing your medication, um, I, I think it would be helpful to go talk about this with people who actually actively support your aims. And I'd add to that um, that, like, there is an element here and I about sort of feeling, it sounds to me like feeling out of control and just, like, that some of this um, response is coming from you know, you're not getting guidance from the higher ups at your school. You're not getting necessarily the support that you're looking for from your spouse. And it, you mentioned that you're, you know, the letter writer mentions that they're considering early retirement. And like, it sounds like a really um, clear defensive response to to this feeling of like, I can't control all these terrible things that could happen. So I'm going to just like, shut it down and leave the situation. 
But I would also encourage the letter writer to take a uh, a self-defense class. Um, not like a, you know, not like martial arts necessarily. I, I know that there's a, a number of, um, I, I can't remember exactly what they're called, but they're self-defense classes that are based in like empowering someone to respond, whether both verbally and physically. And while the physical part is like, it, and it's not generally dealing with guns. It's generally dealing with like intimate and sexual violence. But the language that they offer um, to de-escalate situations that seem violent or seem unsafe, um, the importance that they give to like trusting your gut feeling about things like this or about things like anything really, um, some of the specific language and some of the specific like strategies I think are really go a long way to like putting a person back in their sort of power. I mean, I don't know. It sounds kind of goofy to say in their power, but like, but the empowerment is real. Like there, it, it, they, these strategies are real effective ways to like, remember that you have certain abilities, you have certain power, you are worth defending and that you're not just at the mercy of these like giant evil forces basically. Yeah, and I would just say it's worth continuing to push back with your bosses. I mean, obviously, like, um, take into account your own, like, job security. But, you know, if they say something like, just lock your doors and everything will be fine, I think that, that is a real opportunity for you to advocate for your students um, and to say, what if, you know, what if there is a shooter already in the room? Um, like, what what strategies can we actually discuss? I'm not attempting to politicize anything. I want to know what the protocol is as a school if something happens. And, you know, obviously it seems like there's a kind of limited degree to which they're actually going to listen or pay attention. But I'm glad that you're doing it. And I, I do hope that you feel um, in the moment or even after the fact able to push back if they say everything will be fine to say, OK, what would happen if it weren't fine? Like, we need to think about these things. I'm not demanding that you have an answer right now, but I think we as an organization do need to think about this. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're going to the doctor. Um, I, I think it will help to to join in in others who are doing different work. Um, I think it'll be helpful to keep talking about it with your bosses. I hope if it helps that you can go see a therapist as well and just kind of talk through like on a daily basis, here's how I experience my anxiety. Here's when it starts. Here's how it feels physically. Um, I'm looking for ways to effectively deal with that anxiety, not to try to get rid of it or to get over it, but to figure out how do I find a way to function um, and, and and stay like okay throughout the day. And up to and including, you know, if you do feel like this is debilitating and early retirement is an option for you, you know, that's, that's an option that you can take as well. I, I don't think that should be your first choice. I hope that you're able to find a way to continue working um, in part because you sound like a really thoughtful teacher, but um, I, I am glad at least that you have in the back of your mind this sense of, okay, if this is getting really debilitating, um, I, I do have that as an option. But I'm just really sorry. I'm really sorry that that's the response you've been getting. It's awful that we're putting teachers in this position, um, that they have to think about these things. That is like the degree to which th that's just awful that teachers have to think about, uh, oh, I would jump in front of my students if someone brought a gun to school and started shooting. Because, right. That's like, not supposed to be part of the job description. Yeah, it's really not. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think we've reached the limits of of, of what we can uh, say to this particular person, although it certainly, um, you know, inspired me to think about other ways in which I personally can try to do more on this. Um, but our next yeah. letter is just 
just a, a little palate cleanser because it's about <laughs> one of the perennial advice column topics, which is uh, yes, hypothetical bridesmaid issues. <laughs> this is this really is kind of my favorite uh advice column topic, which is hilarious because it's not something that I have ever like wanted or thought about personally. But every time mm-hmm. I see a bridesmaid advice seeker or bridesmaid adjacent, I it's this is this is like I go to my happy place. So I'm I'm really excited about this one. Yes. No, anything that has to do, especially with a wedding that has not yet taken place or is not yet even being actively planned. Yeah, and an engagement that has not yet taken place, apparently. Oh, shoot. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anytime where it's like my groomsman's acting up or 18 people want to be my bridesmaid, I'm just like, this is great because it is low stakes and I'm going to get to have a lot of strong opinions. Um, and ultimately, everything's going to be fine in as much as like the point is to get married and everything's going to work out. Right. Um, so it's just a nice palate cleanser. But yes, the subject is self-declared future bridesmaid, which, yeah, guys, bridesmaid is not a job you can give yourself. You really have to be asked. <laughs> Dear Prudence, I am only occasionally in touch with my childhood best friend, a few texts every couple of months, but we've only seen each other once in the last three years, despite living only a few hours apart. My boyfriend and I have been together for several years and will be getting married soon. This friend makes it very clear when we are in touch that she expects to be a bridesmaid. I usually brush it off with a, we're not officially engaged yet, and then go back to not communicating for months at a time. I think she'd be a disaster of a bridesmaid. She's narcissistic and a heavy drinker. She can be very charming when she tries, so my family and many of our mutual friends that I'm still close to expect that she'll be part of a wedding. Planning this wedding is a favorite sport among our friends. Yes, I know how ridiculous that is. How do I shut this down before there is actually a wedding date, preferably without destroying what little remains of our friendship? Oh, man. What? what, Yeah. um, What friendship... Is there? I I'm confused. I'm confused, Mallory. I'm confused about. Understandably, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I. Okay, so you should know that I never, like, ever advocate ghosting, uh-huh. and I don't. I don't think she should like completely ghost her former best friend. But I think she should bridesmaid ghost her, like. Just never ask her to be a bridesmaid and otherwise continue as usual and then send her a wedding invitation. And by that point, she, she'll she probably know that she's not a bridesmaid. Oh, Olga. Sweet, naive Olga. If you <laughs> is think that, is this that woman. Not I, I'm, I've never been one. I'm actually only just now – one of my dearest friends asked me to be a bridesmaid. But that's oh, not coming wonderful. up for several several months. And I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Um, Nobody does. So, so I assume so I assume just like never hearing would be fine. No? Am I wrong, Mallory? No, I mean I, I think you're absolutely <laughs> right, but this person has already demonstrated that they are not reasonable on this subject, inasmuch as she has already said repeatedly over text before the actual engagement, obviously I'm gonna be a bridesmaid. So yes, I think like a, a, a your average kind of reasonable person who who fears socially awkward situations would get the hint. Mm-hmm. This is not that person. This person is a narcissistic, charming, heavy drinker, which, by the way, letter writers, I love it when y'all write into me about the charming drinkers and drug addicts in your life because you always drop in. They can be very charming when they want to be as if that's like 
additional information. And it's like, no, 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 that's part of the heavy drinking. You have to be charming to be a heavy drinker because you have to charm your way out of a lot of situations in order to keep drinking the way that you want. Mm -hmm. The charm is part of the drinking problem. It is not like a surprising attribute your friend just happened to cultivate on the side. They go hand in hand. (laughs) Yeah, that's I never thought about that. I also think charming. I I don't know if this is true now. Um, This is just a little bit of a side note. But I think didn't charming used to be an insult? Like to call someone charming was to basically call them like a faker because it meant that they they were they like charmed people instead of genuinely being good. Does this ring a bell to you, Mallory? You can always use almost any word as an insult, and certainly there are ways in which it can be employed uh, in a condescending way or in a way that suggests this person lacks substance. Absolutely. I don't know that it was ever originally only ever an insult, um, but I'm sure uh, that there are ways in which it has been employed as one frequently. But yeah, so the point is, you are not especially close with this woman. You do not especially like this woman. A lot of your friends are already trying to arrange your wedding for you. Um, And so it seems like mostly what you're afraid of is her yelling at you or all your other friends getting on your case. And I'm sorry to say, my guess is if that's your fear based on how your friends are already acting, you are probably going to get a little bit of that. But I also think that that will be fine. Um, I, I, I think... You know, when you do announce the engagement, you're just going to have to be straightforward if she asks you. Like, obviously, you don't have to bring it up. uh, But if she asks you, you just have to say, no, you are not a bridesmaid. Um, And you should also, I think, think through whether or not you actually want her to be at the wedding. Um, Mm, It is okay. Take it a step further. Yeah, like if the only reason you continue this limited contact right now is because you're afraid of how, like, angry or off the rails she will go if you do stop then there's not actually a reason to maintain the friendship. You're just afraid of her yelling at you. And I'm I'm totally, totally here for people who don't want to get yelled at. I hate getting yelled at. Um, but I think there's a reason you guys don't see each other often. I don't think you like her very much. Um, and if she'd be a disaster as a bridesmaid, I can't imagine she'd be a great wedding guest, especially if she were a wedding guest with a grudge about not being a bridesmaid. Right. And and it sounds like it sounds like you still have like mutual friends. Who maybe and maybe that's like part of the trouble here is that it's not just this one person that you don't really want to see. It's like you're enmeshed in this network of people. But I I think there's something to be said for like not only, uh, you know, having friendships that are about like, you know, it's it's not just about people you're going to invite to your wedding and dress up in the same color. It's also about helping each other through some of these more difficult interpersonal situations of this of which this might actually be one. Yeah, I think it's really fair with all of these friends to just say, you know what, I don't want to talk about planning my wedding right now. Would you do me a favor and not do it? That's it. I I also want to like address this, this little um, piece about preferably without destroying what little remains of our friendship. I feel like I get questions like this a lot. A lot of the questions that I um, get to answer uh, tend to have to do with friendship. Um, and I think that there is this like pervasive belief um, that con- you know that conflict. If conflict destroys a friendship, that's the conflict that did it, and not that the friendship was already inherently flawed. Um, and I think mm-hmm. you know, Mallory, you point out that like this is maybe not necessarily a friendship that is super worth hanging on to. But I think like you know, the letter writer and this person were friends once. 
may, clearly a lot has changed or like the amount of time they talk and the amount they are invested in each other has changed. But like maybe that if there was at some point a time when like honesty and wanting the best for someone else were an important part of that friendship, then like being honest about what the letter writer needs can actually bring it back. And if not, then like I think the friendship there's no there's no there's no friendship there if if just being honest about something like that is enough to tank it. Yeah, I, I think this is a friendship it is fine to lose, but I also understand not wanting to blow things up. But um yeah, you 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 don't have to say, don't talk to me about this, but you can absolutely continue to ignore those things and that's absolutely fine. Just because she is setting up an unrealistic expectation does not mean it is your fault. Um and good luck, maybe elope. <laughs> yeah. So this is just my in-laws make wild accusations about our community. So, you know, this problem will probably only get worse as you as you go on in life. Dear Prudence, about a year ago, my f- husband and I moved back with our family to his hometown. There was a professional advantage to it for both of us, and it's a nice community. We've always gotten along well with his parents and siblings who have remained here. The problem is they have well-established, usually negative opinions about everything, from the schools to the businesses to the residents. And in any and every social situation, they hijack the conversation with references to how horrible these things are. We had a neighborhood barbecue, for example, and my sister-in-law told everyone how quote-unquote abusive the teachers at the local school are, even though she's in her mid-30s and hasn't been in school for decades. If I post anything on our online neighborhood groups, can anyone recommend a good hair salon? They're sure to chime in with a story about how so-and-so cheated them once. My husband laughs it off and says everyone knows his family's eccentric and no one takes them seriously. Is that the right solution? Is it? Um, I actually think kind of yes. But okay. n- but not in the way but not in the way the husband thinks. Like Ooh, go on. <laughs> so I think it sounds like the this letter writer's husband is like dismissing it as a non-issue, but it clearly feels like an issue to the letter writer, right? So but I actually think this it reminded me I don't know, it reminded me of some family dynamics where like the language is complaining. Do you know what I mean like where it doesn't like complaining doesn't mean anything bad sometimes. And I think I like to for me personally that's kind of hard some to deal with because I try to say exactly what I mean and like don't always succeed obviously. I don't think any of us do, but like it's hard to deal with somebody whose default is complaining. I mean, I don't know, it's tough. It's a fine line between like whether what they're saying is significant in which case it probably should be addressed. Um, and like where, at what point it's just like how people talk and can actually be sort of like dismissed with like a a wider filter of just like, okay, okay. I know that like, I'm going to get, you know, some bad feedback about like how there's no good restaurant here, but really I'd like to go get tacos and like, where should I go? Yeah, I would I would differentiate just because I think that's always an important word to follow up on. Um, Mm -hmm. It it does sound like this is a family dynamic that is exhausting, Um, but it it would be worth it. I think, you know, it is possible that they are a pessimistic bunch and uh, that your sister-in-law was abused or saw abuse by the teachers at the local school. So, you know, I I would maybe at, at least there seek to know a little bit more about, like, what was her experience like? Um, what did the teachers do? What 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 happened? Um, 
Because that's really different from saying, I don't like these barbers, right? Like, and, and it, you know, you know these people better, so you will be able to hopefully bring your best judgment in terms of whether or not you feel like that is a term she used lightly um, because they all have a habit of looking for harm done to them or whether she did genuinely experience some real abuse and then just also happens to be a person that you don't like because it is, you know, often possible for both of those things to be true. But it's weird because the letter writer says that they do get along with them well, with the, with all the, the parents and the siblings. Like, it doesn't sound like they're – it doesn't sound like they're and, – and this isn't – I mean, I agree. I think you're you're right, actually, about highlighting that, that word specifically when it comes up. Um, but as mm-hmm. far as, like, this negativity, it doesn't sound like, you know, the letter writer and their husband, like, are don't get along with the family or, like – don't like them. it sounds like they they it's you know we like them but and it's it's like a kind of it's just strange for that to be so um almost like con- uh like so consistent you know what i mean that it becomes like uh, you know it's the the boy who cried wolf all the time yeah yeah i would say as for the rest of it if it genuinely doesn't feel like it detracts from your like otherwise good relationship Um, You know, I would generally say, like, maybe don't post requests for recommendations um, where, you know, your in-laws are going to see it. Like, maybe just ask friends, like, like move that conversation elsewhere because you know that their input is going to be kind of exhausting. Um, And I think that would address it. You don't have to never care about it. You can certainly if at some point you have a relatively close relationship with one of your in-laws, you can say something like, it seems like there's a lot of stuff you don't like. Is there anything that you do? Um, and, you know, there's a way to say that that's real pointed and kind of charged that I don't recommend that you do. But you can actually, I think, kind of kindly and gently reflect back to them like, you have been complaining a lot for the last 10 minutes. I would like to stop. Um, and that's, I think, something that's very fair and reasonable to do. But, yeah, that feels really separate from the, like, potential claim of of abuse by teachers. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, like, it, if it – I don't get a huge sense of how the letter writer – like how emotionally and res- uh, the the sort of um, intensity of the letter writer's emotional response to like all this negativity, and if it really like if it's ex- if it's intense, like if it is really a bummer, I think depending on the relationship, you know, you could also say like I really like it here, and it bums me out to hear like only bad stuff about it. Like you know, you could I, I just think like throwing in a little personal vulnerability if it's there could also help the in-laws see you know the effect of what they're doing and i'm not optimistic that they're gonna stop however unfortunately like i don't i don't i don't see that happening yeah i think this may just be one of those things they do a lot but that doesn't mean it's something that you can't ever interrupt um or just yeah just don't ask them for recommendations on anything (laughs) Um, would, would be my other strategy give them recommendations be like oh my god i found i found this I found this amazing taco spot. I don't I, I I don't know why tacos. I think I just that's my that's my like testing proving ground for if somebody's recommendations are solid. But um yeah, I, I think you should start making stuff up of just like my dentist paid off all of my student loans just out of the goodness <laughs> of her heart. Olga, we did it. We solved everyone's problems. Amazing. Amazing. I um I still don't have a roller derby name, so technically we haven't solved my problem, but I was just about to ask, do you feel like you've hit upon it today? Uh, I just, I, I think I, I have ideas all the time, but I think, um, 
I think it's the sort of thing that maybe has to be bestowed upon you. So I, I think maybe um, – I don't know, like some of these letter writers, I have to adjust my expectations, perhaps, um, of like what what to expect from the world. I don't think it's going to give me I don't think it's going to confirm any of my my brilliant ideas today. Well, um, Mallory, thanks for letting me give this a shot. This is it's much harder to give advice out loud than it is to do it into a computer. I learned that today. Right. Like just when you're listening to something at home in your head, you're like, I know the perfect thing. And then when you're called upon to say words out loud, there's a sort of sense of, hmm, have you tried moving inside of a crystal? <laughs> yeah. And it's weird because I in, like with other humans, it, you know, we're not in the same room right now, which I think like when people I know ask me for advice, I feel like like I'm pretty good at it. But like it's it's hard yeah, it's um, it's hard to 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 know how the the weight the weight the burden of responsibility is heavy on my shoulders from just this conversation. So I can imagine that um, you are getting very uh, very swole from carrying it around all the time. Finally, someone gets it. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. I have the hardest job in the world, and I am constantly <laughs> burdened by responsibility for everyone else's well-being. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and for getting me. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Looking for more from Slate? El Gabfest en Español is Slate's first Spanish-language podcast. Led by award-winning Mexican journalist, broadcaster, and writer Leon Krause, the hosts, all leading Spanish-language journalists, discuss the news of the week in a no-holds-barred free-for-all. They focus on U.S. politics and current events, but they also take on international news as well as sports and culture. And for Slate Plus members, there's an English-language segment so that non-Spanish speakers can hear at least some of the panelists' thoughts. Check out El Gabfest en Español every Thursday morning.